Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we go to Genesis chapter 2 and we see again another reference to the creation of man. But this one has more detail. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and he placed the man whom he had formed there in the garden. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, and this is just a commentary, the writer of Genesis now just throws this in to take advantage of this story that's been told and give us a life application. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, first of all, we understand from this, man was made in God's image. The literalists who read this don't have a problem with thinking and believing that when God said, let us make man in our image, that we bear the physical likeness of God. Yet, those who don't read the Bible literally think it's blasphemous to think that God has a shape that looks like man. But see, they got it backward. God doesn't look like man. God looked like God did first. We look like Him. And they still, can't, they still choke on that. So they believe that God doesn't have any, any image like us. But let's just lay that aside and, and that debate that goes on. And let's uh, move to the, 
to the fact that being created in God's image means something. Bearing the image of God means reflecting something about God. And I, I think that both schools of interpretation would agree that we are to be a reflection of God, an image of God in our character, uh, in our actions, in, in every aspect that we possibly can be like God, except we're not God, we're not perfect, and we fall short in those areas. But we are to be an extension of, a image of, a representation of God. We, it's kind of like we are of God and we have his DNA. So naturally, there's going to be similarities between his creation and him. And man was given responsibilities, this creation of God. And he was to tend the garden. I... I, I don't understand how much tending the garden there needed to be. In this perfect world, I'm inclined to believe they didn't have to weed. Tending the garden. So what did it really comprise? I'm not sure. It must have been a fairly cushy job compared to tending an orchard today or a garden today. But he was given responsibilities. God created man to have responsibilities, not to be idle. He's to have something to be busy with. And we stray from that in the modern day and age. He also was created to have close communion with God. And God would visit the garden. And man would be able to fellowship with God. And we've broken that today. And then God created a, a helper for man. And this helper was not taken from the dust of the ground. The beasts of the field were taken from the dust. Created. And all man had in common with the beasts of the field was they both were taken from the dust of the ground. But there's not the commonality there that brought the kind of intimate fellowship and relationship and closeness that comes from the woman being taken from man. It gives him a special relationship that he could not have with the beasts of the field. Gave him a special relationship that he cannot have with another man. This woman taken from him. There would always be a very special and unique tie between them. And man and woman there in the garden, because of their fall, they would face many challenges together. They were intended to dwell in paradise together. They were intended to eat abundant, unspoiled fruit and produce. They were intended never to have to fear spiders or wild animals. Mosquitoes. Poison ivy. Snowstorms or tornadoes. Or anything that we fear today. It was perfect. They didn't have to till the soil and sow and reap and pray for rain and try to store enough food to make it from harvest to harvest. It was perfect. And you notice they were instructed to be fruitful and multiply before they fell. 
God intended for them to produce and have children and all to live in this perfect garden. But they didn't make it. It wasn't until after they fell that then they had all these problems to have to deal with. Such as women who would have to go through excruciating labor to give childbirth. And women, can you imagine that in that perfect world you were going to be able to give childbirth without any pain? We lost a lot in the fall. And the man would have to toil and by the sweat of his brow try to bring produce forth from the earth. Instead of just being there, ripe and ready for the picking. Now we have to really work for it. Except all of our technology has made that easier. But we lost so much, and men have fallen so short of what God expects of us, and we've drifted so far from the original plan. Now, there's so much to be said about that original pattern. Uh, Obviously, one of the hot issues today that just isn't going away is the issue of marriage. It just isn't going away. But you can't go back to the book of Genesis if you believe the Bible, if you believe Genesis, and come up with any other conclusion than God's perfect pattern, God's only pattern. And when the writer of Genesis took time to make a comment on this, saying the man and the woman had been created, and he was out of the dust, but she was out of his side, and then he pauses and he, he gives this uh, ongoing authority and institution when he says therefore from now on this is the way it's going to be that a man's going to leave his father and his mother and he's going to to uh, take a wife and the two are going to become one and it's the only way that two people can biblically become one is one man and one woman one man and ten women aren't one one woman and ten men are not one. One man and one man are not one. Two women are not one. And there's something about oneness that God blesses because it's His plan. And sometimes one woman and one man are not one. And God doesn't bless that either. But the target and the unity... It's for man to take a woman and love her, and the two become one, one flesh. And that's what marriage is all about, is trying to work that out, make that happen. And any time you see the oneness starting to split into two-ness, you've got problems. And it takes both of you. Not one, it takes both of you committed to get it back to that singularity. A real man and his wife. I could spend the whole sermon on that, but I'm only going to touch on that and move on. There are a lot of things you can give your wife, mister. There are things I know I cannot give my wife. We've always lived on a pastor's budget. And I know what my limitations are. I'll never be able to adorn my wife with unlimited amounts of expensive jewelry. She will go out dressed beautifully and adorned wonderfully with all of her fake jewelry. 
And just me and her, and up until this point, you. <laughs> the only ones that know that. But I know I can't do better than that. I would want to. I know I can't take her on luxurious vacations to exotic resorts. I can't give that to my wife. I know I cannot shower her with expensive designer accessories and buy her a $500 purse. There's some things that she's not going to get. So I made up a list of things I can give her. And one of the things that I can give her is my faithfulness. She said this morning, Happy Father's Day. And I said, uh, You're stuck with me. <laughs> You're stuck with me because I made the commitment whether thou goest, I will go. I told her, if you ever run away, pack my bags. I'm going with you. You're stuck with me. In all my years of pastoring, in the many counseling sessions that I have had to have with people, they come to me. I've never once had a woman come to me brokenhearted and distraught because her husband failed her to to give her expensive gifts. I've never had one time. But I've had many women who were devastated to find that their husband had been unfaithful. So it's not those things that I can give to my wife, nor that you can give to your wife, that mean the most to her. Give any godly woman a choice. She will choose the security of trust and faithfulness and loyalty and commitment over all the expensive gifts you could possibly give her. So the best gift that I can give my wife and you can give your wife is faithfulness, devoted love, protection, and security. And give those to her. The real man and his children. Once again, it could make a series of sermons. Be there for your kids. Your children covet your time. And too many parents try to substitute things for their time. Number two, be the example for them. You're already the example. Be the good example. Be the right example. Don't be the wrong example. Determined to be a godly example for your kids. Kids pick up on everything. They're just like sponges. They pick up on the good and the bad. I don't know how many of you ever had to discipline your kids for saying things that they should not say, little kids should not say. And when you say, where'd you get that? They got it from you. They pick it all up. I never had to worry about that with my kids. I didn't talk 
like I didn't want them to talk. I knew if they got it, they got it from somebody else. They didn't get it from me, and they didn't get it from Ann. I made sure of that in our home. Ann and I used to run a children's ministry out in one of our churches in California. A little town of about 2,500 people. We just literally pack our gym out every Wednesday night. One night I talked to these little kids. It was a Wednesday night or two? I think it was Tuesday night, wasn't it? Thursday night was the high school. Tuesday night was the little kids. Thursday night was the high schoolers. Saturday night was college. And on Tuesday night, the little kids would come, sixth grade and under. And I would have a devotion for them and always have a salvation call. It was wonderful. They all got saved every week. It was we had thousands saved in those seven or eight years we were there because their hearts were tender. You tell them that Jesus loved them. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to accept Christ as their Savior? And all the hands shoot up. Don't you wish we were just like little kids? And I talked to them one night about drugs because it's never too early to talk about the drugs to the kids. And when I got done and had the altar call and uh, the call for salvation and we were dismissing, I remember one of those little kids that must have not been much older than seven years old, six, seven years old, came up to me and tugged on my clothing and wanted me to bend down so I could talk to him. And so I, I got down on their level and looked them in the eye. What do you want? And, and this little child looked at me and just kind of matter-of-factly talking about my little devotion said, my daddy does drugs. I'll never forget that. It just gripped me. This little child was aware of what was going on in the home and, and realized from my devotion that this was something that we were trying to tell them is not a good thing. And make the association between the pastor says it's not good. My parents are doing something that's not good. And come up and say, my daddy does drugs. I, did, I, I found it hard to even think of what to say. I can't remember, but I, you know, I know I was struggling with, you know, how do I respond to my daddy does drugs? I was thinking about somehow, some way I've got to say, well, you know, let's pray your daddy it's the best I can remember my response to that you're an example I know we think that the kids they don't know what's going on so we can live this double life but they know a lot they know whenever mom and dad are not getting along they, they sense the instability and the insecurity going on and kids don't need that. They need stability. They need examples that they can look up to. And I suppose that that unrealization of that little child who comes up and says, Daddy does drugs, I wonder if they'll ever get that out of their brain. I wonder if that day whenever the tempter comes along and offers to that child, now a teenager, some drugs, I wonder if they'll have the strength of character and commitment to say, we don't do that in our family. We've been taught differently. We know that's wrong. 
or if there's going to be that little, little thin line that ties to them that one time sitting in the gymnasium at our church, they heard a preacher one time say, God doesn't want that for your life. I wonder if that's going to overshadow what's been modeled for them at their house. What hope do they have? Be an example. Be a godly example. Be the encourager. I was in a discussion group with some ministers just a couple of weeks ago. We were discussing some of the real challenges that pastors go through. And I just happened to mention to him, as he had talked about a lot of the hate mail and, and abuse that, that he had gone through, and, and I said, I, I, I understand what you're going through. I've, I've experienced much the same things. And I, in my response to him, I said, but I do something very weird said I don't know any of my colleagues have not met one yet that does what I do I said all the hate mail I get I save it and I go back years later and I read it it's it's like reading novels you cannot make this stuff up and every time I tell other preachers that they rebuke me like I've done something evil I said, no, I said, I've got resources that you don't have. And he wrote me back. And here's what he said in his response to me. He says, I do not possess the same noble heart you do. What I have is a file of all the pastor appreciation cards and the happy letters and the like that I've been given over the years. Some of them by the same folk who wound up, holding, wound up holding the knives that were put in my back. But all those kinds of cards and stuff, there is one in there that wasn't from a parishioner or even an occasional attender. It was from someone who never really understood why I chose to become a minister. And why I serve poor, struggling churches. N did not understand why I have come to accept it. But did not rail on me for my choice. And he said, that was my dad. Who passed away in 2006. And he sent me a note card during one of the most difficult times in my past ministry. I doubt he really knew what was going on with me at the time. But the message was very simple. It was profound. And it was a gift from God. The message was this. I love you, my son. My friend. Signed, Dad. And then this minister says, you know, my heavenly father says the same thing to me. And it keeps me going. Be an encourager. You've got a heavenly father that is watching you and he cares. And he's encouraging you. Keep on going. I love you. My son. My friend. Your heavenly father. Mr. I wonder, have you been an encouragement to your children? 
Now, I've talked about the godly man and his wife and the godly man of his children, and I'm going to move to my next point, but those are there, and we're just going to nail them to the wall for a minute. And we're going to keep coming back to these two because I have not fleshed those out yet. And my third point, which is my final point, which is my longest point. And this is where we start preaching. Is the godly man in an ungodly world? There is a huge difference between being the kind of man that the world wants you to be and expects you to be and the kind of man God wants you to be. This world has very twisted concepts of what it means to be a man. If boys and young men follow the world's blueprint for manhood, I promise you they will never be a real man, a godly man. They will only be this weird caricature of what the world thinks a man is with all the exaggerated defects and peculiarities unregenerate people tend to invent. I have to ask, but I'm not asking for a show of hands, this rhetorical question. I have to wonder how many men in this church today have had good, godly influence in their life, who've had the pattern of godly manhood modeled for them in their life. I know that you are sitting there and thinking about it. And sometimes we just adore dad no matter who he was. But we also have to be honest. Did you really get godly manhood modeled for you as you were growing up? A lot of cases, they didn't. And those people are trying to discover what godly manhood is all about. If they didn't find a mentor somewhere to teach them godly manhood. And I'll tell you, if you're trying to figure it out as you go, I congratulate you. But I also will tell you that there's plenty of mistakes to make in trying to discover it. It's the only thing you can do. But it's a difficult thing. You have to stay plugged into God's Word to have any clue and find godly men as mentors. And here's just a few of the things that we need to understand about what it means to be a man of God. Be a man of integrity. Be a man of compassion. Be a man of self-control. Be a man of wisdom. These are things that godly men exhibit. God wants the man to fulfill his creational and his biological design and purpose. Because you have that. God created you to be something. And the question is, are you being that? God biologically designed you to be something. And the question is, are you being that? So the first thing I don't want to deal with in challenging the men 
to rise up to be real men is to embrace your masculinity. Masculinity is under attack today. On the one hand, the concept of masculinity has been terribly perverted by this world. The carnal concept of masculinity includes twisted ideas about how many women one man can conquer. How many children he can sire by different women, and the world calls him a real man. How many beers he can drink at one sitting and still drive home. How fast his pickup can run. And these are things that impress the world. And the carnally minded. And they're still the same things that make life unbearable for your wife. No wonder she thinks sometimes that she married a Neanderthal. Because you're trying to be a man according to the world's calling for manhood. And doesn't it matter that re your relationship with your wife is the most important relationship you can have on the face of this earth? All of your buddies who are egging you on to be a man by their standards, they were created out of dust. That's all you got in common with them is dirt. It's the one that was drawn from the sight of man is the one that you should care about. Why do some men think it's funny to spend all of their free time trying to invent new ways to offend their wife? Tim the tool man Taylor and his philosophy of manhood encouraged a generation of adolescent males who have no interest in growing up. And then on the other hand, that's the Neanderthalic group. Then on the other hand, there's this group that wants to kill manhood and replace it with femininity. You look at the television and the movie industry. And remember, all this stuff is, is just coming out of the minds, perverted minds of, of writers and carnally inclined people. And where in that industry, entertainment industry, do you find a good model of manhood? If all the young men know about being a man, they learn from some television program or from some movie somewhere, they're not getting the message. Men are portrayed as shameless womanizers, wife beaters, dysfunctional husbands, or deadbeat dads. They're portrayed as wimpy, whiny paranoid, nerdy germaphobes who are on this quest to get in touch with their feminine side. I'll tell you how I get in touch with my feminine side. I go home and put my arms around her. She's the only feminine side I have. Oddly masculinity means men who understand what it means to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Now you're looking for the model? Like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That's the biblical way to love your wife. You're willing to go to the grave for her. 
Godly masculinity means men who understand their physical strength, which is a gift and a design from God, is to be used to protect their wives and not to intimidate them. That's godly masculinity. Godly masculinity means men who truly know how to show tender compassion like Jesus did. That's true masculinity. Godly masculinity means men who know how to patiently instruct and not just intimidate and ridicule and belittle. Men who have tried to raise their sons by constantly ridiculing them and and belittling them don't have a clue what it means how to raise their children. I go back to that point, be an encourager. If you're going to be a real coach, you're going to teach, you're going to instruct and not humiliate. Humiliation is not a teaching tool. And it's not masculinity. Godly masculinity means men who take their vows seriously and commit their lives in unwavering devotion to their wife and to their family. Godly masculinity means men who understand what it means to live in a man's world. And like Paul, who said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I acted like a child. I understood like a child. I had a child's mentality. But then he builds this wall of separation. And he says, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Godly masculinity means we grow up. We cannot live in a permanent adolescence. We become men. It means you are living in a man's world now. you got to put away the childish way of thinking, the childish way of acting, the childish way of doing, and you have to start acting like a grown man that brings glory to God. Put away the irresponsibility Put away the silly adolescent parties and sophomoric silliness that you did when you were a teenager or you were tempted to do. It's time to rise up and be a man. Get away when you were younger of wasting your pitiful paycheck on every new toy that caught your eye. It's time to put away that foolishness and be a man. I just read last week about a man in Tennessee that the news had on their program, he had 22 children by 14 different women. He gets $7,000 a month from the state, and he says he cannot pay child support. And that news reporter put the microphone in his face, said, do you think you are a good husband, a good father? He said, yes, I am a great father. I love my children. How many do you have? He said, 18. He, does, he, does, he forgot four of them. They asked him how he feels about having fathered 22 kids by 14 different women. His response was, I quote, you can't knock a man for loving women. When I was a child, I may have acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away the stupid and foolish and childish things. I say to men like that, grow up. 
It's time to be a man. It's not about you anymore. You got to quit acting like an alley cat and start acting like a real man. Get off the dime. You sponged off others too long. It's time to make your own way. It's time to man up. Nobody owes you anything. It's time to rise up and be the man God wants you to be and not the man that the world applauds. Godly masculinity means man can put the needs of his wife and his family before his own needs. He crucifies his own desires because men, they just want to play. We love to play. The motto of manhood in this world is he who dies with the most toys wins. But the model of godly manhood is I must sacrifice for my family. I no longer am able to just do what childish people do. I have responsibilities. I have a wife. I have a family. I have financial goals I have to meet. Man, grow up and be a man. It takes a real man to do it. Godly masculinity means men who will never give their wife any cause to be jealous. These men are so secure, they don't have to flirt with other women to find approval. They are only interested in having the approval of their wife. End of discussion. Godly masculinity means the man covets God's approval more than the approval of other men. Like Daniel who was told, you cannot pray. But Daniel was a godly man. And he said, I don't care what you say, I'm going to pray. He knew what was right and what was wrong. He had a clear understanding he was a godly man. Or like Peter and John who were threatened, if you keep preaching this Jesus, we're going to throw you in jail. And Peter's saying, well, you've got to do what you've got to do. But we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and we have heard. And you let us out of here, we'll be preaching in the square tomorrow. Godly masculinity means you refuse to back down from your godly principles when you are threatened. Now that's real manhood. That means in this world when it's unpopular to be a Christian, it's unpopular to be a biblical man, it's, unpopli it's unpopular not to join with the party crowd, that the man of God lets all of that slide off his back. I don't care what you think. I don't care who you think I am. I've got a wife at home. I've got kids at home. I've got a family. I have responsibilities. And thank you, but no thank you. I know where my place is. Godly manhood. Number two, exercise your spiritual leadership. God created man first, then he created woman. There's a powerful truth in this, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with suggesting that women are inferior to men or second class. It has everything to do with man having the primary responsibilities that have to be done in a family. And if man doesn't do it, women pick up the load and do it. God bless the women for understanding responsibilities that men sometimes miss. But when God created man first and gave him all these responsibilities, men, there are things that are primarily your responsibility. And one of those things is God expects you primarily to be the spiritual leader of your home. 
It's not the wife's responsibility to lead the family in honoring God and worshiping God and serving God. It's man's primary responsibility to lead the family in those things. May the spirit of Joshua rest on every man and let him stand up and declare, as for me and my house, oh, I love that. That's masculine. That's manhood. That's we're not putting up with any nonsense in this house. Dad is rising up. The husband is rising up. The man is rising up. And he is taking his stand of leadership in the house and saying, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And I told my boys one time, I said, as long as you're in this house, you're going to serve the Lord. When you get old enough to get out on your own, and you get on your own job, and you make your own your way, you're going to serve the Lord. I'll come looking you up. There is no escape clause. Male leadership is so vital to a healthy, functional family. Multiple studies indicate how vitally important it is for a father to have a healthy relationship with his children, his daughters, and his sons. I just want to give a couple of quick examples, but this is so interesting. Important components of the father having the right relationship with children are time, communication, emotional support, and guidance. And research conducted by, the, by Nielsen, and there are many uh, researches that have been conducted, many studies that have been conducted. But this one, for example, concludes that fathers have as much or more influence than the mothers do on their daughter's life. We're just talking about the daughters now. Such as the ability, the father creating in the daughter her ability to trust, enjoy, and relate well to males in her life. Well-fathered daughters are more self-confident, more reliant, and more successful in school and in their careers because they had a dad that loved them and raised them properly. They are less likely to develop eating disorders. All of this related to having a healthy relationship with their father. They are less likely to be promiscuous because they had a father that loved them. And they're not out trying to find that love that is missing from the male component in their life by sleeping with any number of women because they had a father. Father, be there for your daughters. It's your spiritual duty. Sons learn their philosophies of life from their fathers. They learn more about how to treat women from their fathers than they do anybody else. They learn how to prioritize the responsibilities from their father more than they do anybody else. They learn how to deal with anger from their father more than they do anybody else. If dad has a violent temper... You can almost guarantee the son is going to think that's masculine. That's the way to express myself. If dad is lazy, the son is going to have a hard time developing a good work ethic. He's walking in your footsteps, dad. Walk in the pathway of the Lord. It's your spiritual duty. Number three, 
Be strong and be courageous. And I want to read a passage from Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you, talking to Joshua, and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to all the Israelites. I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And nobody will be able to be able to stand against you in all the days of your trouble. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Underscore, be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people into the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Verse 7, underscore, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from the right nor to the left, that you may be successful in what you do. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night. So you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Underscore, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And what he has said is, you have to do what I say. Follow my rules. Live according to my law. Listen to me. And you will not have to be afraid of anything. So God is passing this mantle of leadership from Moses on to Joshua. said, you're only going to be a godly leader if you follow me. And if you follow me, there is no fear. Be courageous. Do not fear. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We are losing we are losing real men from our American society today. In some churches, it's almost impossible to find enough men to help in the operations of the church. Thank God we've got a population of men in this church. But I have pastored churches before where I have thought, if we turned a man-eating lion loose in this church, he would starve to death. It was the women who showed up on work day. It was the women who mowed the yard and cut the brush and burned the trash and painted the church. It was the women who came to my prayer meetings night after night and one all-night prayer meeting we had. It was the women who stayed all night. The men all went home. It was the women who helped Royal Rangers because we couldn't find enough men to train young men what it means to be a godly man. So the women were training them. It was the women who taught Sunday school classes because we couldn't find enough men. But in our society today, the godly man, I think, is going the way of the dodo bird. He's going into extinction unless somebody does something about this. I'm deeply concerned about the number of godly men in our society. It's diminishing. Where are the men going? I'm calling today in this sermon... As a lifelong calling, I'm calling for commitment from you, man. Rise up and be the man of God that He intended you to be. 
We need to teach our young boys what it really means to be a man. We need to raise a generation of real men because this world's already raised a generation of false men. We need some real men and we need to start all over again. This world is in the worst shape it's been in modern times. And the only time I'm going to venture to say that this world has ever been in any worse shape than it is today, God destroyed it with a flood. We're in bad shape. And part of the problem we're in bad shape is because of the breakup of the family, and part of the breakup of the family is because men are not rising up to be men of God like they're supposed to be. If we're ever going to take the kingdom message to this world, if we're ever going to rescue men and women from plunging headlong into hell, if we're ever going to manage to turn this thing around, we're going to need some men. We don't need childish men. We don't need sissy men. We don't need Neanderthal men. We don't need irresponsible men. We don't need fools we need men. We need men that God can work through. Men that, who realize who God is, who are not afraid to bow their knee before Him and call Him Lord. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. And be the man God called you to be.